Welcome to the podcast of Central Church. This is our latest weekly message. Uh, I can't say that I know the depths of Linda's life, um, but I do know that she's a woman of God. She does the She Is Project, am I right? Which is about um, women's stories, which she has had a book published and another one on its way. Wow, I can't believe I'm remembering all this spontaneously. (laughs) So good. And um, I think she's going to talk about building on rock and sand for us tonight. So let's enjoy her talk. Some of you are new here. Welcome. Sorry, I'm just doing that now. But um, you can see we're a messy church. We're a slow church and we're a messy church. And so Linda has already gathered that. Yes. <laughs> I don't know how easy or hard that is for her. <laughs> Sometimes I see her face when the service is going on and we all don't know what we're doing and she's going, ooh, <laughs> ooh. <laughs> and I laugh at her. She doesn't know that. It's the first time I've told her that because I think, wow, never mind, Linda, it'll do you good. <laughs> the being messy church. Here you go. Thank you. Thank you. Well, that's unlike any introduction I've ever had before. (laughs) But but that shouldn't surprise me either. (laughs) Um, Thank you, Linda. And I'll try to develop a better poker face in the future. (laughs) Uh, It's one of the reasons that I came to Central and certainly one of the reasons why I am still here is um, for all the things that you described is a beautiful community of people that are unashamedly, honestly, messily, magnificently themselves all the time, it seems. And, <laughs> and that's a rare and unique community and something that I treasure. And I, before we start to look at the Bible, I did want to just say, um, as a relatively new member of the family, what a gift it's been for me to be part of this incredible community. And I'm I'm not sad, Um, (laughs) but I I am going through menopause, so that doesn't doesn't help. (laughs) The HRT comes and goes (laughs) in terms of effectiveness, because I am also very authentic. Um, But I... There's someone that looks like Caro. I know it's not Caro because she's not here because she's on holidays, but I was going to say uh, what a gift um, Caro and Luke have been to me and to Gary and I know to each person here. But sometimes when this is all you know, um, you you forget how special it is and it takes someone who's a relative newcomer to remind you that what we have here, because I'm part of the we uh, now, is very special and should be treasured and nurtured and celebrated and honoured and allowed to flourish. And yes, there are things that make me uncomfortable at times, but I've learned the older that I get that there's nothing wrong with being uncomfortable. It's actually a really healthy place to be. Not all the time. Sometimes you need a rest. (laughs) But uh, I want to thank Caro for um, being an, an absolute gift in many ways, as a friend and as a beautiful pastor and shepherd, and for laying a beautiful table where um, you can come here, the thing that has never changed in every service that I've been to, 
is that I've always felt safe. Not necessarily physically safe, depending on some of the things that we've been doing. No, I'm joking. Uh, <laughs> maybe not. But emotionally and spiritually and the wholeness of who I am has felt like I'm in a safe place. And again, I can't underestimate or overstate how important that is to have a place where you can feel like it's safe for me to actually explore who I am, who God is, and to find out what that's going to look like without feeling any sort of weight of judgment, condemnation or expectation. It truly is a rare thing and I think if you want to know what the kingdom of God looks like, well, it's going to look a little bit like this with more food and more alcohol, potentially, because that is Jesus' beverage of choice. Anyway, I'm going to pray because I need God's help. Jesus, we thank you for all that we have already experienced together. We thank you for this moment and this place and this space. And Spirit of God, I thank you that you're here. You've already prepared our hearts. You've already ministered to each one of us. And I know that as I speak that you are going to speak even louder. That's my prayer. That through the words that I share and the thoughts that I have, God, that people will be drawn closer to you, that they will, their hearts will be enlarged and their spirits will be strengthened and their lives will be transformed from the inside out because they've encountered who you are. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I've got the little bit of emotion out of the way. Okay, eye on the clock, quarter to five. So 5.15, Gary, wrap me up. Because um, <laughs> I feel like I can say that out loud here, whereas in other places I just have to be secretly peeing my pants because I've gone 10 minutes over and everybody's sending me death stares and wants me to shut up. So um, we've been doing the Sermon on the Mount and uh, that's basically from when I started uh, coming to uh, Central quite consistently. Uh, we've been unpacking the Sermon on the Mount. And the scripture that Caro asked me to speak on today and just share some thoughts around is from Matthew chapter 7, verses 24 to 27. And it's actually the finale of the Sermon on the Mount. So let me read it to you. It's probably familiar to anyone who grew up in any sort of Pentecostal or Protestant evangelical Sunday school scenario. Therefore... Everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man or woman who builds their house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. I'm just going to move forward because I feel like I'm on a Pantene shampoo commercial with the, uh, the fan. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the first time I heard that scripture was I was about six, and I was taken along to the Albion Park Anglican Church by my next-door neighbour who had taken mercy on the family of five small girls that lived next door who were in the midst of a very chaotic season of family life. And I still remember my first trip to Sunday school because I had on the special outfit, as you did back then, little white box-pleated skirt, pink knitted jumper, black patent leather shoes with white ankle socks, 
all of us matching, of course. And uh, that's just extra information. So you can picture us all showing up, five little blonde girls, to Sunday school. And I sat down and we sang this song with actions. And I was captivated. This is my version of paradise. There. <laughs> oh, it's, it's got five verses, Luke. So I won't, I won't, I need to conserve my time. But if you had a childhood look like mine, then you will remember... The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. The wise man built his house upon the rock. And the rain came tumbling down. And the rains came down and the floods came up. Okay. So, <laughs> so I mean, I can sing the entire thing, but I figure that's not really fair to those of you who don't care about that song. But that song and its actions, and its certainty, and its just reliability, and sense of security, and structure, and purpose, and family, and community, and just, it represented everything good to a, a reasonably disoriented, unstable little six-year-old who was trying to make sense of a lot of chaotic things in her own life. And that song, and everything else that was part of that experience of church, oh, it was good for me. It was a place where I just flourished. And when you sing a song like that at six, and it stays with you, as we've all demonstrated, it's like I will be able to sing that when I'm 90, I'm pretty sure, complete with all the actions. It sounds so straightforward and uncomplicated, doesn't it? The wise man builds his house upon the rock. The rains come, the storm comes, but the house on the rock stands firm. But the foolish man builds his house upon the sand and the rains come and the storms come and the house on the sand goes splat. I mean, it's pretty dramatic when you're six. That's quite the finale. And actually the last verse of that song is, so build your house on the Lord Jesus Christ because as the prayers go up, the blessings come down. And the blessings come down as your prayers go up and the blessings come down as your prayers go up. Can anyone else sense, like, I was getting set up for disappointment here? <laughs> and I didn't even realise it at six. <laughs> but I tucked all of that away. And it became the foundation of the rest of my faith. Because at six and seven and eight and nine and beyond, words like those just sound so comforting and familiar and certain. And we were singing them in total isolation to everything else that came before them, which was almost three chapters of really heavy-duty, countercultural, revolutionary rhetoric and almost a manifesto. It was like a messianic manifesto. And then we get the Sunday School Chorus at the end. But I just learned the Sunday School Chorus at the end. And so I took hold of that and I thought, life was good. If I do the right thing and build my house on the rock, I'll be sweet. If I'm silly and do something on the sand, well, we all know how that ends. It's pretty uncomplicated and straightforward until we read the Sermon on the Mount and we realise that that's actually the massive introduction to that finale and that conclusion. And because we're not, we've not been part of every single message that's been preached, I thought, before we move any further, I really have to give just a little bit of a reference to the Sermon on the Mount because that's where this last passage that we're examining actually gets its power and its relevance. 
And Caro did a phenomenal message last week, and I'm not just saying that because she's anonymously sitting up in the back row, but what we see in every message about the Sermon on the Mount that's been unpacked over the course of this year is that it was actually a revolutionary message. It was inviting people into something that was going to turn their worlds upside down and inside out. That everything that they thought they knew about what it meant to follow God, to even come to terms with who Jesus Christ is, is he even Christ? That everything they thought they knew, well, guess what? You're going to have to look again. You're going to have to dig deeper. You're going to have to go beyond the shallow and the superficial and you're actually going to have to consider there's another way to tell this story. And I love that last week particularly. <laughs> there was just, you know, little insights when we looked at the wide road and the narrow gate where I, I sat there and I thought, I've never thought of it that way. And I imagine that when the people who heard the Sermon on the Mount heard it, they were saying exactly that. I've never thought about it that way. Oh, is that what it meant? So all that other history and heritage and, and effectively Jewish liturgy that we've grown up with, is that what that's about? Because the Sermon on the Mount is basically the wisdom of God calling us to reorient and reframe our values, our visions and our habits away from expressions and external focus of righteousness to an internal deep heart transformation. It's Jesus inviting us into the life of God's kingdom, not just in the future but in the present. And many people, have, have, when they've described the Sermon on the Mount, have said it's basically the biography of Jesus. Particularly if you read the Beatitudes, the only person that managed to nail the Beatitudes is Jesus Christ. And so that's what the Sermon on the Mount is basically giving us an expression of the character and the vision and the mission of Jesus and what he's calling us to be part of and what he's calling us to establish in our own lives and in our community. So when you think of the uncomplicated formula that I was given in Sunday school of just build on rock and do the right thing and storms may come but you're going to be okay, it starts to become a little bit more complicated when we revisit what it is that the Sermon on the Mount calls us to do. In a nutshell, we're challenged to embrace mourning, spiritual hunger, enjoy persecution, find thanksgiving in suffering, pursue peace, build unity, pursue purity, extend forgiveness and mercy, shine our light, flavour the world in a good way, love our enemies, be content, not to worry, pray without performing, give without getting, sacrifice without being noticed or praised, and love without an element of judgement. How hard can it be? So, piece of cake, really, isn't it? Just build on that rock, do those things, and all will go well for you. I love what Oswald Chambers says. Some of you may be familiar with him. He wrote, he's a theologian from last century, 20th century, which actually is not that long ago, but uh, he's probably most famous for writing My Utmost for His Highest, if anyone's familiar with that. He said, The Sermon on the Mount is not a set of principles to be obeyed apart from Jesus Christ. The Sermon on the Mount is a statement of the life we live when the Holy Spirit takes a hold of us. 
So when we examine the Sermon on the Mount so that we can understand what it really means to either build our lives on the rock or the sand, there are three things that we have to take into consideration. And again, Caro mentioned this last week and so I'm stealing or just reinforcing her wisdom, is that when we examine any piece of scripture, there are three things that I try to use as a filter to ensure that my level of awareness is healthy. And these are context, culture, and character. What's the context of what's being shared? What's the culture in which it's being shared? And, who, and what is the character of God? And so often in context and culture is where we answer those questions like who, why, what, when, and how. But it's imperative whenever we read God's word that we don't take a 21st century lens to it, that we actually examine, examine it in the context and the culture of the people who heard it for the first time. And significantly, as Caro pointed out last week, the character of God what foundational characteristic of God are you using? What's the lens of God that you have when you read this? Because if we only see God as a judge, then we will only find judgment in what we read. But as she um, discussed last week, if we look at God as a, as a healer, as a doctor, as a clinician, someone who's invested in sharing the truth to bring us to wholeness, then that changes everything that we receive out of what we read. So let's go back to the basics of this parable of rock versus sand, rock, paper, scissors. Before we get to those couple of verses, it's important to note that they're actually preceded by a couple of other examples. Caro shared about one of them last week, and I imagine that we'll touch on some of the others in the weeks to come. But we find there, next slide, as if by magic, that we have two roads, two gates, two trees, two professors, not university professors, but that was the best word I could come up with for people that profess to know Jesus. <laughs> two builders, two houses, two storms, two foundations, two different experiences. So Jesus, in his message, in the way that he structured what he's sharing, is actually setting us up to recognise there's choice here. You have a choice. And this is not choice to threaten you, choice to intimidate you, choice to uh, destabilise you. This is choice so that I can now share with you information and insights so that you choose what is going to be best and right and good for you and your community as we establish the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus is doing. But one of the reasons I wanted to point that out is that when you read through that whole little passage just immediately preceding the rock and the sand, you can see that, okay, there's, there's the wide road, there's the narrow road, there's the gates, there's the tree with good fruit, the tree with bad fruit, there's the two houses, etc. The thing is that when you look at those things, each of them, at first glance, they, they're barely indistinguishable from each other. The only thing that tells you the difference between the trees is that one has good fruit and one has bad fruit. The only thing that tells you the difference between the roads ultimately is the destination of the roads. The only thing that tells you the difference between the two buildings is the, the foundations. You can't actually see the foundations of those two buildings. You have to look deeper to see that it's the foundation that makes the difference. And so when we think about what the people 
of the first century would have heard when they heard Jesus share this great manifesto. They've been listening for who knows how long and hearing things that are officially just like mic drop, blow my mind moments. And then Jesus says, therefore, build your house on the rock. What would they have thought when they heard Jesus speak about rock and sand? Well, I'm not a builder, so, <laughs> so I had to Google. Um, and some of you may have a building background, and to you this is patently obvious, but to me it wasn't so obvious. Is that the difference between building on rock and sand is maybe not as obvious as I would have thought, because I'm thinking rock like rock on Mount Kira, sand, sand on North Beach. Not so. When they heard that, they would have heard and visualised, because of where they were actually hearing this message, was on the Sea of Galilee. They're surrounded by what's known as alluvial sand, which I think means sand near water, possibly. Feel free to correct me, anyone? You don't care? That's fine. Oh. River sand. There we go, from the scientists. Thank you. <laughs> and so, because of the climate there, that in the summer, the river sand baked hard like rock. So the only way to find rock was to do what? Dig deeper. So if you were to come in to build a house in the summertime, the, it was very difficult, particularly to the uninitiated or someone not from around here, to know where you would build your house because the river sand gave the appearance of rock. It was only when you dug down that you realised it was sand. And so the, the builders of, which I'm assuming is everybody there was, you know, living in some sort of dwelling, would be very familiar with the fact that when Jesus said, build your house on the rock, don't build it on the sand, that they knew that in one season of life, sand and rock looked very similar. In the summer... You could be building on sand and believe you were building on rock until the winter rains came. And when the, when the rains came down and the floods came up and the house would be, if not swept away, certainly destabilised because what looked like hardness in the summer actually became slush in the winter when the storm came. So what's the difference between building on rock and building in sand? Because we're moving closer to what does this even mean for us? Because this is interesting, Linda, love the background, but what does this mean for me? Well, again, not a builder, but these were the obvious things that came to my mind. The difference between building on rock versus building on sand. Building on rock took more time because you had to dig and dig until you found it. And I did Google Palestinian construction of dwellings in the first century... <laughs> Thank God for Google. Where were we before that? Like, I'd have to have gone to the library. <laughs> Crazy. <laughs> Sometimes they would have to dig as deep as 10 or more metres to find rock. So building on rock took more time. Building on rock, by extension, then took more money. Because while you're building, you're not doing anything else. You're not herding your sheep or making leather or baking bread or whatever you did back then. And it took more labour. It would require more engagement and interaction with people. So building on the sand 
less time, less money, less people, quicker outcome, better outcome, faster progress, the illusion of progress and success in a much quicker time frame. So if it was me, I would have been building on sand because I'm all, all about let's get to the end. Let's get to, you know, something that looks good that we can sell. <laughs> Which I'm sure isn't the way they were thinking. But you can understand that in terms of progress and presentation, building and sand was a lot more appealing and they would have known that. And the great thing about building on sand meant that you could present something beautiful to everybody else because while your neighbour is still digging their foundations, you've put up a hammock and you're sipping on a Palestinian pina colada watching them work. Until it starts raining and then your house washes away <laughs> with your little umbrella floating down, <laughs> down the river. Because that season of sitting back and relaxing, thinking that you've done all that was required to do and you took the shortcut, well, that was short-lived. So what does that mean for you and me? What's the difference between sand and rock for us? And there are countless ways that you can read this and filter this and apply this to your life, but I've just got a couple of thoughts and you can do with them what you want. <laughs> Hopefully they'll be helpful. But when I read about read that scripture again, I got the, these two words. To me, sand represents form and rock represents substance. Are you building your life on form or are you building it on substance? Are you building on your life on things that give the illusion and the appearance of security and safety and community and establishment? Because that's what a house represented. Or are you building your life on something that's substantial, that's going to last? Something that is actually going to long-term give you security, stability, a sense of community and place to be protected. And I just heard the whispers in this passage of something that Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23. You might be familiar with some, another uh, almost a, a much harsher, less gracious declaration that he makes that's often described as woe to the Pharisees and it's found in Matthew 23 and he basically accuses the Pharisees of valuing form over substance and reinforcing this sense that what is important is not what looks good but what's actually being built on the inside of you because he accuses the Pharisees of saying you know, you've neglected the most important matters of law, justice, mercy and faithfulness, yet you tie the tenth of your spices. You clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. You look beautiful on the outside, but inside you are like a tomb full of dead whitewashed bones. So we can see that this is not a one-off that Jesus is referencing is that actually he builds layer upon layer upon layer through every interaction that he has with people to say, it's not really what's going on, what you're able to present to people on the outside. What's really important and what's going to last is what you're doing on the inside. The foundational work, where you are investing your time and your resource and your energy on something that's actually going to last and withstand the storms that inevitably come to both builders. You see, there's no distinction about... Who gets storms? They both get storms. But only one house manages to survive the storm. And I do want to make a point here 
which was like a little bit of an Oprah aha moment for me. Because I know that sometimes these verses towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount can be used as weapons, shock horror, of, you know, turn or burn people and, you know, life is this black and white and this is the way it's all going to go and you better get your act together otherwise you're going to die. You know, have you ever sort of read some of those scriptures through that lens? But what I read there, which was like encouraging to me, is that when Jesus said, build your house on the rock or build it on the sand, the storm's going to come to both. One house will stand, one house will be destroyed. The houses are destroyed, but the builder isn't. The builder's okay. And you know what that means? It means the builder gets to build again. So what you're building may come unstuck. What you're establishing is going to be challenged. The difference as to whether it lasts or it doesn't last is what foundation you've built it on. But the thing that I believe this tells me anyway is that this is not about my eternal relationship with my Heavenly Father and Creator. This is not about my destination at any point. It's about the experiences that I have in my life right now. It's about what I'm affecting and influencing and impacting in community as I establish the kingdom of God now. Is that going to last? Is that going to have substance beyond me? Because the builder is not destroyed by the storm, just what they build. I um, um, meet with people to share their stories from time to time, as some of you are aware, and um, Carrie knows this story. Um, I met with somebody not too long ago, and she shared the story of the aftermath of losing her husband quite suddenly. She was only 32, and he dropped dead of a heart attack. And as I was sitting with her and she was sharing her story and we were sort of putting a scaffold around that so that it could be shared to encourage other people, she said to me, I distinctly remember when I sat down in the wake of what had happened to my husband, his body is still in the bedroom and I'm sitting on the couch in the lounge room and there are about 20 paramedics in the house. My two small children are in the backyard, four and six. She said, in that moment, it's like time stops still. And I had just an undeniable moment of clarity with God. And I saw, not rock and sand, but actually roads, as we discussed last week. She, saw, she said, I saw a windy, narrow, stone-filled, twisty, turny, treacherous road. And I saw a wide highway. And I sensed God say to me, you can choose the highway, but you're going to be on the highway for the rest of your life or you can choose the narrow, windy road, and that's going to get you through this. You decide. And she said in that moment, she knew that she needed to choose the deeper, deeper path. And she did get through that time. Of course, her life is forever changed by the reality of losing your husband and the father of your children at such a young age or at any age. But I thought, is that not... So true for so many areas of our life is that what is appealing and what is obvious in, is so enticing at times because we want, to, we want to build the mansion and start sipping on the pina colada and, you know, being on the deck chair and waving at people and saying, yes, look at me, life is awesome, look what I've built because we didn't take the time to build the foundations 
because digging deeper is messy, sweaty, hard work, and it's decidedly unglamorous. You may have friends that can come and help you along the way, but at some point, you're going to be the person out there at midnight with the shovel on your own. That's just the reality. I can think of a number of times in my own life where I have chosen form over substance, where I've chosen what looks like the shortcut in avoiding the long road that is actually the road of discipleship and maturity and substance and kingdom. And although I could choose from a myriad of examples, one of the things that's probably most relevant for those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ is the times that I've shortcutted in actual Christian community where I have been happy to sing but not necessarily worship, where I've been happy to show up but not necessarily engage, where I've said I belong but I don't really believe and be the church, where I've read the Bible but I haven't let it change me, where I've elevated culture and style and preference over meaningful, authentic discipleship and community. Maybe you can come up with your own examples or your own times where you have opted for form over substance because it's just easier, but it doesn't last. And you know what? I think one of the great challenges of hearing but not giving expression, which is what the rock, rep the sand represents. So the rock is hearing and acting. The sand is just hearing. Is that in the times in my life where I've just heard and haven't given expression or action or activated what I'm hearing, I'm just, I'm just unpleasant eventually. Because I get frustrated all of, the, all of the worship and the singing and the Bible verses, ugh, they're just white noise and annoying and irritating. And if I allow that to take hold, well, I become a bit indifferent and detached. And then the more I do that, well, then, hello, cynicism, very comfortable, very easy to sit at a distance and judge until I remember, oh, that's right, I'm meant to be out working the Sermon on the Mount, which tells me to not judge. <laughs> but here I am judging and feeling very justified in my judging, all because my head is filled with white noise of spiritual cliches and I've got calligraphy scriptures on my wall and I've got Christian conference merchandise and I've got it all, but I don't have the substance behind it. I've just got the form. This same verse that popped up, uh, in my Sunday school years, revisited me on the 3rd of March 1991, almost 29 years ago, when Gary and I walked down the aisle and became Mr and Mrs, and I'm wrapping up, babe, thank you. <laughs> See what an open and honest relationship we have? <laughs> when Gary and I got married, this verse about building on the rock or the sand was the sermon that was preached at our wedding. Now, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't a little disappointed because I was expecting love or at least the three-strand cord, but instead I got a building metaphor. And I was like, and actually I watched the, the DVD slash video, well, it's a video that became a DVD. It's almost 
impossible to watch, certainly without glasses. It's very grainy and there's a lot of questionable music. But we do look awesome. Um, <laughs> and all that fashion is back in fashion now, so if anyone wants to dress, it doesn't fit me anymore. <laughs> but uh, we, I, I just thought, oh, okay, so what sort of... What's the point of that, really? And actually, when that's what I was going to say, you can see me going when when he does the um, stands up and starts the message. I give him the side eye because apparently I have no filter. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, I've got the Force Princess Diana hit, and I've got the head tilt. Oh, wow! This is what we're going with. Awesome. <laughs> but you know what I've realised is I've visited on that scripture this week. Um, it was genius on his part because the key to seeing, to hearing and acting is community, it's family, it's relationship. I mean, where better to outwork everything that the Sermon on the Mount talks about than in a marriage or a family? Because I tell you what, I thought I loved Gary before we got married and then we got married and then I realised I loved him even more. That's funny. <laughs> Everyone's like, of course you did. I'm like, are any of you married? <laughs> then we got married and I'm like, what the hell? <laughs> this is ridiculous. The advertising is false. Uh, who can I, you know, where can I claim a refund? I mean, that's probably what he was thinking. But seriously, the things that you come up against in actual relationship with each other. I didn't know what it was like. I thought I knew what mercy was until mercy had to be extended to me when I behaved inexcusably. I thought I knew what it meant to forgive until I had to forgive what I thought I could never forgive. The key to sustainability, the key to the Sermon on the Mount is that it cannot be lived or expressed outside of this space, of community, of messy, awkward, uncomfortable, rubbing up against, bumping into, getting snot on each other relationship. And the, the more we try and put, an, put all of that at an arm's length, the more frustrated, cynical and disconnected we become because that's not the way we've been designed to live. The only way the kingdom of heaven can be established here and now today is actually in relationship with other people. And that's what I think Jesus was talking about. I love this quote, and I am wrapping up only five minutes over time, from a lady called Kat Armas about the Sermon on the Mount. She said, Jesus didn't ask us to let him into our hearts. I was like, wow, that's so true. How many times have I said that? And it's actually not even in the Bible. Jesus asked us to follow him. Following Jesus is not a call to private piety disconnected from society. Following Jesus is relational, social, spiritual and political and arcs towards justice. The thing is, building on the rock involves time, discomfort, displacement and delays but it's the only way we're ever going to build anything that lasts. Two thoughts that I've just got to share because this was really awesome is that I just read yesterday 
that there's a new translation of the Beatitudes where they are translating directly from Aramaic because you understand that what we read in the New Testament is the Greek translated into English or whatever language. But Jesus didn't speak Greek. He spoke in Aramaic. And so they are now progressively going back to original Aramaic and giving us a first-level translation from Aramaic to English. And the thing that's super cool about the Beatitudes, so remember that's the blessed are you thing. I've always thought, which, you know, really are the cornerstone of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed, it's a little, it's a bit passive, really, as a word. You're like, uh-huh, yeah, that's not really doing it for me. Even though it does have lots of great meaning. But it's got even more meaning in Aramaic because what the Aramaic says is that what Jesus was saying is activated, stand up, take hold, get out, are you? You come alive when you mourn because then you will be comforted. You come alive when you're pure in heart because then you see God. You come alive when you extend mercy because then mercy is extended to you. So much better than blessed. And if we want to come alive then we need to do the hard work of digging the foundation. And I'm going to finish by praying. And it's a benediction from a a Benedictine nun called Sister Ruth Fox. You might have heard some of this. So you can close your eyes. I I don't have it up there, sorry. May God bless you with a restless discomfort about easy answers half-truths and superficial relationships so that you may seek truth boldly and love deeply from within your heart. May God bless you with holy anger at injustice, oppression and exploitation so that you may tirelessly work for justice, freedom and peace. May God bless you with the gift of tears to shed with those who suffer from pain, rejection, starvation and the loss of all that they cherish so that you may reach out your hand to comfort them and transform their pain into joy. May God bless you with enough foolishness to believe that you really can make a difference in this world, so that you are able, with God's grace, to do what others claim simply cannot be done. And may the blessing of God, the supreme majesty and our creator, Jesus Christ, the incarnate word who is our brother and saviour, and the Holy Spirit, our advocate and guide, be with you and remain with you today and always. Amen. That was wonderful. Thank you. Um, what can I say? While Linda was speaking, I was thinking about our church and um, the depth that we um, are seeking in, within our community for deep commitment and, and deep um, relationship with God and with each other, and that there's no molly coddling in this church. And I was thinking about you're responsible for your spiritual life, And I was just thinking, one of the things that we do here is encourage you to go deep and, and, you know, not to seek and to look at are you building on sand or rock.
And we will always encourage you to go looking for the rock, no matter how long. And we will love you and we will stand by you and we will walk with you and we will cry with you and we will do whatever is necessary because that's what we're here for, to help you to be on that road. That's, uh, that's just part of the slow journey that we love about Central Church. Anyway, thank you, Linda. It's beautiful. Have a beautiful week. Thanks for listening. If you want to check out more about Central, visit us at centralchurch.org.au. Music by Chris D'Souza, a beloved member of Central. Central. <laughs>